The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Is talking to people about God, about their relationship with God, their grasp of God, their understanding of God. And I, I have the joy of doing that in really two main categories. First, I have the privilege of talking to people who are related to our church, people who are related to Emmanuel Baptist Church, maybe tangentially, maybe previously, I call through the whole list, or maybe presently. And those have been overwhelmingly positive. Talking to people from our church family is so wonderful to hear what God has done in their life, what God has been doing since then in their life. I will tell you, though, and this is a burden on my heart this morning, and it comes in today's text, some of the conversations I've had with people, especially those tangentially or previously connected with Emmanuel, unfortunately, I somewhat often hear something kind of like this. Well, yeah, I'm, you know, there's a God, and you know, there was once a time in my life that he was important, but I don't really need him now, you know. Yeah, there's, there, there's a God, and, and I know some really important facts about him. In fact, I grew up with the Bible in my home, and I grew up going to church, but, you know, that's not important to me today. Not only do I get to talk to Emmanuel folks and people formally connected with Emmanuel, also I get to talk with people in the community. God gave some wonderful divine appointments this week, just walking around in the neighborhood, and I Notice something common there as well. This one sounds a little bit more like this. Well, if there is a God, I don't need him. You know, if there is a God, my life is fine. My life has everything that I need. Surely, if there's a God, I don't see what his relevance would be for me. Now, today's passage is actually about rejecting the real Jesus. And I need to make sure I say this up front. There are lots of different ways to reject the real Jesus. You can reject the real Jesus even though you have a former membership at a church like ours. You can reject the real Jesus uh, even though you live a socially respectable life and it seems to be fulfilling for you. Today's passage will get at the heart of rejecting the real Jesus. Now here's something I'm concerned about and just say it to you up front. I fear that this is the kind of passage that you could read at home or you could hear preached and think, well, that's a passage for somebody else, you know. I mean, that's a passage about the first century. It's about Jewish religious leaders. It's about stuff going on in Jerusalem with Jesus. It doesn't have any bearing on me now. Let me just say something that will help us read the Bible more fruitfully. The Bible itself says in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is breathed out by God to reprove, rebuke, correct and instruct. So every passage of the Bible is for you. Even if it's not written directly to you or directly about you, it is for you. And this passage will discuss things that might also be true of you and of me, if we're not careful. So today's passage is titled, my sermon is titled, Rejecting the Real Jesus. And there are subtle and sophisticated ways to do that. And in today's teaching, Jesus will get at the heart of three common ways people still reject Jesus. They are ways he was also historically rejected. So what's going on in Matthew 21? In Matthew 21, Jesus comes to Jerusalem for the first time, but it's also the last time. 
after all of his earthly ministry has ramped up to him arriving in the city of the Lord, that's where his life ends. This week on Tuesday, I did what uh, Pastor Hunter and I always do. We read through the passage together, discuss it some. What observations do you have? One of the observations he had that I thought was really good was he said, Josh, this passage seems to answer how is Jesus praised on Sunday, Hosanna in the highest, and crucified on Friday. And I think he's right. There are three things that happen, um, and I'll just summarize them for time's sake, that start the pot boiling, and they were read to us by our brother. Now, the actions that Jesus does are symbolic and they're important. The first thing Jesus does is he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. You might be thinking, big deal. Why, why is that significant? Well, because almost everybody else walked in. So why did he choose to ride in on a donkey tied to a colt? And the answer is he was fulfilling Zechariah 9, verse 9 and 10, which says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I mean, Jesus walked everywhere his whole ministry. Why is he riding a donkey now, so that they will know he is the one who brings salvation. And yet Jerusalem rejects it. What's the second thing Jesus does to, to make clear who he is? He publicly cleanses the temple of its wickedness. Now, just, just to clarify what's, what's going on there, because I've known sensitive believers over years saying, uh, Pastor Josh, can I buy a book in the foyer, or is that bad for us to, to, to do? So it, it's actually not bad that they're exchanging currency. You had to, to use Jewish currency, so they needed to exchange currency. What's bad is they're doing it in the Gentile court and displacing the Gentiles so the Gentiles can now no longer come and know God. So the Jews expanded their business in such a way that actually prohibited people from coming to know the Lord. That's why Jesus drives them out. Now, when Jesus drives them out, there's a lot of Old Testament stuff that he's fulfilling. Think of all the good kings. What did they reform? Think of Hezekiah. Think of Josiah. Think of David's desire to build the temple, Solomon's fulfillment of building the temple. All the righteous kings knew the temple is the place where God and man meet. So it has to be done in the right way. So Jesus is fulfilling that as the king of kings. So he's ridden in as a, as a donkey, as the king. He's cleared the temple as the king. And then he does the third, and this is the weirdest one he does. Verses 17 through 22, I'll just summarize it for you. Jesus sees a fig tree, and he's hungry, and he goes to the fig tree, and when it has no fruit, he curses it, and then it withers. And you're thinking, what, what does that mean? What does that have to do with anything? Well, don't forget, here's a tree that from a distance looks like it would have fruit, and then when you get close, it has none. It has an appearance of life and health, but it doesn't actually, which is kind of what's going on in Jerusalem. An appearance of life and health until you have closer inspection. And what happens if you don't really have life? Well, you're, you're cursed, you're damned. So unsurprisingly, when you get down to verse 23, and now we'll actually read in the text together, there's a showdown brewing. Look in verse 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he, as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? 
Don't forget, this is Jesus' first time in Jerusalem. And he comes in and he is known. <laughs> he rides in on a donkey. He cleanses the temple. He curses a fig tree. And now when he comes back to the temple, they immediately ask, what, who do you think you are? Now the showdown comes down to the fact, why would anyone need to accept Jesus? Who is Jesus that we need to accept him? Jesus gives a shrewd answer here. He says, well, by what authority did John the Baptist do what he did? And they realize that if they say from God, then they have to also acknowledge Jesus because John pointed to Jesus. But if they deny that he did it from God, well, then they, they're not going to sit well with the crowd because everybody knew John the Baptist was an unusually faithful man. So the showdown now turns to three parables. Now, don't forget, these three parables are originally being told to the Jewish religious leaders, but they still describe a pattern of rejection common in people today. People still reject Jesus for these same three reasons. Now, at first, at the beginning of the week, I thought, do I really have time to preach three parables in one sermon? <laughs> you know? The answer is I have to. Here's why. Each parable begins with, and then he told another parable. And then he told the next parable. See, Jesus preached these three as a triplet, as a triad, as a group. So I'm not allowed to preach them separately because they make a collective point. So we'll have to move kind of quickly on them because they are meant to all be heard together. If you have a bulletin this morning, it gives you the, the brief overview of the three parables and what they're getting at. Here's, here's what it is. The first parable gets at pretense versus obedience. The second parable gets at rebellion versus fruit bearing. And the third parable gets at spurning grace versus humble and obedient trust. Now, all three of these ways were ways that the Jewish religious leaders were rejecting Jesus. All three of these ways are common ways people reject, maybe you reject, Jesus today. The first parable, we say we're going to obey the Father, but we don't. The second parable, we rebel against the Father and Jesus' authority. And the third parable, we simply ignore God. Throughout the parables, you should be asking in humility, is this descriptive of me? Is this descriptive of me? Okay, now let's look at the first parable. And that's verse 28. This is the first parable, pretense versus obedience. Verse 28. What do you think, Jesus asked? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And that son answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. Then the man went to his other son and said the same, Go out into the vineyard and work today. And that son answered, I go, sir, but did not go. So verse 31, which of the two did the will of the Father. Which one? You know? The, f the first one, right? The first one at first said, no, no, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, Dad. But then I'm wrong. I need to do what Dad asked me to do. And then he does it. The second son, you know, he's outwardly compliant. Sure, yeah, you got it, Dad. But then he never actually does what the Dad asked him to do. Surely this is the easiest of the parables to understand, isn't it? To give lip service to the right things but to never actually do them means you're living in disobedience to the Father. Regardless of whether or not you said the right things or know the right things. 
So look at what Jesus says as verse 31 continues. Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe in him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed. Even if they initially said no, they then changed their mind. But notice this, even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds. Have you noticed how hard it is for many to admit, I was wrong. I was wrong. You know, I know I said the right things, but I was wrong. I need to change my mind. Some will never do it. You did not change your mind and believe in him. This passage really makes a simple point. It really doesn't matter very much what you promise or pledge or give pretense or lip service to. It matters what actually you do, what actually changes through you. Of course, he's not saying we're saved by our actions, but he's saying that a life that's truly been changed issues out in obedience, loving obedience. James 2.26, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Or as Jesus himself said it in Luke 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you to do? And then he gives the parable of the two houses. And he says there's a house on sand and there's a house on rock. The one who hears my words but does not do them is like the man who foolishly built on sand. But the one who hears my word and does them is like the man who built his house on the rock. Let me say it to you this way this morning. If you've given Jesus lip service but you've never given Jesus your life, you are not a Christian. If you've given Jesus lip service, yes, Lord, but you've never actually given him your life, tell me what to do, Lord, and I will obey. You're not a believer. As Jesus says clearly, you will not enter the kingdom of God. So realize the seriousness of rejecting the real Jesus. I've noticed uh, it's so easy to say we're doing what the Father wants when we're not actually doing what the Father wants. Uh, I'll give you one example because it's it's just such a common one. This this morning in Sunday school, I was talking with the ladies in there. And how back in the day when I was not a pastor, to be honest, it was easier to share the the gospel because um, people asked me what I do, and I'd say I'd work for the post office, and then nobody put any walls up. We could just talk, you know. But now, when if I meet someone at the park and they say, what do you do? And I say, I'm, I'm a pastor. Then immediately they're like, oh, I, I have a church membership somewhere. <laughs> and then that conversation kind of unfolds. And here's how it goes very, very often. Very, very often they'll say something like this. You know, Josh, I have an understanding with God. I don't go to church now. I don't have any relationship with the Lord in any meaningful way. But God and I have an agreement with each other. I just, I kind of soak things in personally, and me and God have our own arrangement with one another. And then I'll usually paraphrase just a few verses to them. I'll say, well, do you know Hebrews 12, 5, that says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Or do you know Hebrews 13, 17, which says, obey your leaders who watch over your soul. Or do you know Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, 1 Corinthians 12, and Romans 12, which all say you have a spiritual gift to employ for the edification of the body? Or do you know the 96 one another's of the New Testament? And these are just the top of my head. Do you know those scriptures? Because it seems like you maybe don't have the arrangement you think you have. It reminds me of when I'm driving in my van and I hear yelling in the back. 
And I look in the rearview mirror, and I see two of my sons punching one another. And I look carefully and look at the road and then look back up in the rearview mirror, and I see my one son is holding his brother's hand, and he's punching his own face. So he's holding his hand and punching his own face with it. And I say, son, you, you can't do that. And he says, but he likes it. <laughs> do we not sound the same when we say, oh, God and I have an arrangement. I disobey nearly everything he says, but he likes it. He likes it. Look at how Jesus ends this. What do you reap if you give lip service to, yeah, yeah, me and God, we have it all figured out, but you don't actually care to obey him. Verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? The first, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you. As Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John later wrote, your commandments are not burdensome because we love you because you first loved us. So be careful. If you think because you can answer the right questions, that means you have a spiritual life. The devil can answer the right questions. Now the second parable is about rebellion versus fruit bearing. This parable is longer and it's, it's very, uh, it's, it's very direct. Look in verse 33. Here another parable. Notice I have to preach them together. <laughs> Here another parable because they go together. They're a unit. The verse continues. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it. Um, I'm going to stop here for just a second. You read commentators and they'll point out that the vineyard is a common metaphor for Israel. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, Psalm 80, verses 7 through 16. And, and they're right. But here's a danger that I think those commentators make. Once they say, hey, the vineyard's Israel, then many of us will say, oh, good, this isn't talking about me then. All right, if you read Jesus carefully, you'll notice Jesus does something a lot that we normally don't do. Jesus mixes metaphors all the time, all the time. He'll tell a parable of soil and seed that mean one thing in this parable and mean something totally different in the next one. He'll tell a parable about trees and fruit that mean one thing in this parable, totally different in the next. Jesus is totally capable of taking a common metaphor and pressing it in surprising directions. So this is about us. In fact, this is about humanity. Who built the first garden? And who did he put in it? And how did they receive it? And then how about Noah's contemporaries or Babel's contemporaries? It's not just an Israel problem. This is a humanity problem. So there's a master of a house who planted a vineyard as God did when he spoke and made this world. And notice how good God is. He put a fence around him and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. So he built it right. He built it beautiful. He built it to bear fruit for him because it's his. And then he's so gracious, he leased it to tenants like us and then went into another country. So notice the master cares about this vineyard and wants it to flourish. Now verse 34, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his, don't miss the pronoun, his fruit. This is his vineyard. This is his fruit for his glory. So he sends his servants to get what belongs to him. How do the tenants respond? 
This is not just a problem for Israel, though it is a problem for them. This is a problem for humanity. How do we respond when the master comes to receive his own fruit? They took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Verse 36, again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Now, no doubt, this is what the Old Testament nation of Israel did to the prophets. It's what they did to God's messengers. But that pattern of rejection to those who speak the truth in love still prevails today. Are there not people who hate when their Christian relative comes over? Oh, why do I have to have the cubicle next to the Christian guy? God forbid he tells me he's a pastor when we're at the park. You see, there's a rejection to those who prick our conscience that everything I'm enjoying belongs to the Creator. Romans 1 says a human problem is to choose the Creator's stuff over the Creator. No, I'll just enjoy the vineyard and the wine. I don't want you. Verse 37, finally he sent his son to them saying, they'll respect my son. Has he not been forbearing? Think of all the time he's given to respond the right way. I'll send another servant. I'll send another servant. I'll send another servant. I'll give them more time. I'll give them more time. They'll respond right this time. You know what? Surely they'll respect my son. Now this incredible forbearance builds up our expectation that if they reject the son, the wrath that will come is righteous and implacable. They have had more than enough opportunities, haven't we all? So verse 38, when the tenants saw the son, this is how devious humans are. They said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. As humanity still does. No, no, this is my life. This is my world. This is my community. I'll make it the way I want. Verse 39, and they took him and threw him out of the vineyard that belongs to him and killed him. No one tells the story as well as Jesus, and he's so good at then engaging the audience. So look in verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what do you think he'll do to those tenants? And notice how his original readers answer. They, the Jewish religious leaders, said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. Well, you said it. And let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Now, of course, most directly in this parable, Jesus is addressing the chief priests and the scribes, and he is warning them that if they do not receive God's own son, that they will be rejected and they will face a miserable death. But don't miss that this pattern still continues today. This is a pattern of rebellion against God's son, even though we still live in the world that he made. If the first parable is about those who at least answer the questions correctly. And they give lip service to the truth, though they never actually give their life to the truth. The second parable is about those who are just hostile rebels against the authority of God. The heart posture of it is like this. No, it's my life. And I'll do with it what I want to. Actually, at some point, they start to think, it's my vineyard. 
Isn't that amazing? The master built the vineyard. <laughs> he dug the wine press. He built the tower. And at the end, they kill the son thinking, this is ours. This is our world. This is our life. In each parable, ask yourself, is this true of me? Do I rebel against God's authority? Does it bother me? Does it make me angry that there is someone higher than me to whom I should joyfully submit? Now, each parable has its own warning. The first parable's warning was, even those you thought impossible will make the kingdom, and you won't. The second parable has an even stronger warning. Look in verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? This is the fourth time in Matthew 21 that he said, have you never read in the scriptures? Constantly affirming the Old Testament as truth. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is doing something even more amazing here. When they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord who's come to save us, they were quoting Psalm 118. Jesus now just finishes it for them. Have you not read the other part of Psalm 118? That when the builders are getting ready to build, there's this one stone that they think, we don't need that one. But then the Lord makes that the most important stone. Verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Now the second parable is affirming the same as the first. You will not have a place in the kingdom of God. But now it gets even stronger. Look in verse 44. And the one who falls on this stone, someone who stumbles over this stone, will be shattered, broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And now notice their response to verse 45. The chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable. They perceived he's speaking about them. Although they were seeking to arrest him, <laughs> they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. What a moment of grace they were just offered. You need to repent. And they realized, yes, I am the one in the wrong. This is about us. But instead of saying, you know what? I'm wrong. God, forgive me. Instead, their attitude is, you know what? We need to kill him. That's our only salute. We got to kill him. For six months, Jesus has been telling the disciples that he would be murdered by the chief priests and scribes. He said that in chapter 16, 17, and 20. And now he says it to the scribes themselves, and they hasten to actually do it. This answers the question, how was Jesus cheered on Sunday and crucified on Friday? But this morning, we need to understand this passage still is one that we must hear from as well. The stone. The chief stone, the Greek just says, head corner. You get the picture of a cornerstone or even perhaps a capstone, but something large, something crushing, not only something primary, but something dangerous if it's not handled correctly. Look in verse 43 and 44 again. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Verse 44, notice how vivid the imagery is. The one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces and shattered. But when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. To stumble over Jesus, to reject him, is to be shattered in the most infinitely important way possible. Think of this, though. Think of how many people live in the shadow of the stone before it crushes them. They live under its shadow, suppressing their guilt, 
shifting their blame, denying their pangs of conscience. One day, though, the stone falls. And if you've rejected it your whole life, when it does fall with absolute crushing truth, all of the blame you've shifted, all of the conscience pangs you've ignored, all of the denial will be of none effect. You know why I love verses like this? Can I just be really candid with you? I don't know if your church experience was like mine. Um, I love verses like this for this reason. My whole life, I kept hearing sermons in which Jesus was presented like a feel-good vitamin that you could give a 60-day trial to. Or like a feel-fleeting frivolity you could get for a discount on Groupon. Or like a genie, or a bellhop, or afterlife insurance, or a benign life coach who always cheers on every decision you make. Do you know Jesus doesn't present himself that way? He says, I'm the stone. If you stumble over me, you're shattered. If you refuse to accept me, you're crushed. You know what we think in America? We don't think Jesus is like a stone. We think he's like a feather. You know how a feather just kind of floats down from the sky? And if it touches you, it just barely lightly touches you. It doesn't affect anything. You can pick it up if you want to, put it in your back pocket, put it on your hat, put it behind your ear. It's an accessory if it matches for you. If it works for you, Jesus is like a feather. If he's beneficial, it's kind of a nice little light touch. No, listen, Jesus is the solid rock that you build your life on or he's the crushing stone that shatters you. There is no trial. There is no, if this works for me, there is no, you know, I'll be the decider of that. No, he is the king of kings and creator of the universe. So now he tells a third parable. And this parable is about a heart that ignores his grace. And this third parable is in chapter 22, verse 1. Again, Jesus spoke to them. Notice again, so I have to keep preaching it. Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Have you seen those save-the-date cards, right? Put them on your fridge, let everybody know, hey, here's the wedding coming. We want you to come to the wedding. This is a similar kind of a concept here. This is a wedding. We really want you to be there. They know it's coming. They could make it. They refuse to go. Verse 4. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. In other words, this is an extremely nice wedding. And the father is letting you know, not only are you invited, what you're invited to is wonderful. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Verse 5, they paid no attention, which is Greek for they don't care. (laughs) And they went off, one to his farm, another to his business. In other words, they went off doing things that really don't matter that much. They all could have cleared the schedule. Nobody does. And then verse 6 sounds insane, but it sounds insane because it's trying to show you how insane it is to reject the wedding The rest seized the servants of the father, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Killing people for inviting you to a wedding. But that's how crazy it is to reject the invitation to such a great blessed gift. They've ignored the invitation. They've murdered the king's servants. So what happens now? Verse 7, the king is angry, righteously angry. 
And he sent troops and destroyed those murderers for their murder and burned their city in proper judgment. Verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. I want to bring out an important point to you. Verse 8, he said those people were not worthy. And if this morning you're thinking, oh, you become worthy by being good enough. No, look in verse 10. They found bad and good people. So what does it mean to be worthy to get into the wedding? Does it mean you're like such a great person that people want to invite you? No, they're going to the street corners at this point. (laughs) Worthiness to get in the wedding we're about to read in the next verse, verse 11. When the king came in to look at his guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And notice he was speechless because he knew his action was not right. Verse 13, then the king said to the attendants, bind them hand and foot and cast them into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wait, do you get it now? You're not invited in because you're worthy in your action. You're invited in if you wear the garment the Father gifts you with. You see? Here's a gift. Here's a robe to cover you. Here's a clothing that shows that you've received my grace. Robes of righteousness from another. Verse 14, many are called, few are chosen. Many are invited, few respond. The king graciously invites widely, even the street corners, but only those who gratefully wear the garment, thank you for your grace, can stay at the wedding. So if the first parable was about pretense versus obedience, lip service versus your life, the second parable is simply rebellion of authority. The third parable is simply spurning and ignoring God's invitations. Isn't God so good that he invites and invites and invites and invites? No one can say, I didn't get an invitation. Didn't we read together Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God. No one can say, I didn't get an invitation. Everybody gets an invitation. Repeated invitations. And just think, no, I don't, I don't need that. I don't need what God has. I'll go back to my farm. I mean, the wedding sounds great. I'll go back to my own business. And then when they're invited again, now they get angry. Why do you keep inviting me? You think I need to be at your wedding? Now I'm going to kill your servant. And then some people think, you know what, I'll come, but I don't need the garment. I'll get in on my own. I'll get in on my own terms, on my own accomplishment. No, the invitation is grace, and the acceptance is grace. The garment is a gift. So the warning here is in verse 13. It's the strongest of all of them, isn't it? The other two say you won't have the kingdom. This one says you'll be cast into outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus has spoken directly about this, calling it hell at several points in Matthew. This morning, let us have ears to hear. Do I respond like the first group? I give lip service, but I won't give my life. Do I respond like the second group? No, this is my life. You have no authority over me. I'll do what I want. Or do I respond like the third group? I simply ignore all the repeated invitations and think that I can make it on my own account. 
So this parable, these three parables told in conjunction have told us the seriousness of rejecting the real Jesus. Each one of them has a warning at the end. But now let me tell you the blessing if you know who the real Jesus is. In these three parables, did you see Jesus in them? First parable is about two sons, right? Who's the obedient son? What did God say in Matthew 3 at Jesus' baptism? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Hebrews 10.9 says, Jesus said to his father, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus taught us in Matthew 6 to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, your will be done on earth. Jesus in Matthew 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed to his father, Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. See, there is one perfectly obedient son, and his name is Jesus. So rather than reaping rejection, instead reap the reward of knowing the obedient son as yours and find joy in the obedience he works in you to the same father. Number two, in the second parable, did you notice Jesus in that parable? Who is Jesus there? The stone, right? Did you remember Peter picking up on that in his ministry? In Acts chapter 4, he's preaching to these same people. And he says, this Jesus whom you crucified, the one that the stone the builders rejected, he's become the chief cornerstone. But then Peter says this about Christians in 1 Peter 2. He said, there is one living stone, Jesus, but then he said, upon whom which you are being built as living stones, plural, mortared together, being built on the solid rock. See, this morning, rather than reap the crushing shattering of the stone falling on you, instead, call on the stone for salvation and your life will be built on a solid rock that will never fail any test. Number three, who is Jesus in the third parable? He's the bridegroom. Isn't it interesting? When I think of a wedding party, I think of the bride. I mean, father of the bride. We just watched that movie the other day. (laughs) And I thought of my daughter and calculated money that I don't have. (laughs) Think of a wedding party. Think of the girl. I think of the bride. But this feast, who is it for? Did you see? It's for the king's son. Why is it for the bridegroom? Because of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present her in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing so that she might be holy and without blemish. Why is this party for the bridegroom? Because he has rescued the bride. And he has done so by allowing himself, the stone, to be crucified by sinners so that he could pay for our sin with his blood and rise victoriously so that through faith in him we could be received at the wedding feast wearing his coat. I was at a wedding once where I was the best man in Wisconsin and the wedding was the week of Christmas. Who has a wedding the week of Christmas in Wisconsin? (laughs) I think it snowed two feet that day. I remember complaining the whole way up and the whole way back. When the wedding ended, I remember the bride going out 
the, all the ceremony was over. It was time for her to leave, but she's still wearing the wedding dress, dress, and it's freezing outside. And I noticed the new groom, my friend, took off his coat, put his coat on his bride before they left. See, the garment the father gifts is the garment of his son, his righteousness placed over us so that we can live with the father. This passage strongly challenges our rejecting heart, but let it more strongly point you to the gracious heart of a father who invites and invites and invites and forbears and invites and forbears. But don't equivocate any longer. Come and receive the son, the real Jesus. Not the one that you can give lip service to and then live however you want. Not the one who's a 60-day trial. No, the cornerstone upon which you are built, the master who you obey, the garment who graciously covers you, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray this morning. Father, Psalm 118 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then it says, This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It is marvelous, Lord, that you took the cross and turned it into salvation, that you took rejection and turned it into acceptance. But then the verse goes on to say this next. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So remind us, Lord, that verse actually belongs in a context in which we rejoice in Jesus rather than reject him. How sad to think how many rejected him in his day, how many more reject him now. Let no one reject him today. May everyone here in this sermon do what the Pharisees refused to do, admit they were wrong, change their mind, believe in him, build their life on him. We have to be honest, Lord, because we're in a church building right now. It is so easy to give lip service and not give your life. It is so easy to forget that the fruit belongs to the Father. It's so easy to spurn the grace of the invitation. And it's so easy to think we could arrive without wearing the Son's coat. So don't let anyone in this church face the crushing stone. May they instead humbly build on the solid rock. Even if they have to admit, I've been here a long time, but I never, ever repented and received Jesus for real. And I pray that for our community as well, because many people think, I don't need God, and they ignore your invitations. The sun rises and shows us your beauty, and they ignore and ignore. Lord, let the weight be so heavy on hearts in Five Points and in Raleigh that they can ignore no longer. And let them come in humble faith to wear the Son's garment and enjoy the gracious feast. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.